Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. Today we're going to be covering a topic that contains lots of warnings. I just want to say this ahead of time. There are lots of uh, graphic descriptions of violence, sensitive themes, mature content, sexual assault, all of the above. And as such, listener discretion is strongly advised. Imagine for a moment, it's 1978, and you're just driving to work on the freeway in Los Angeles and you pass a hillside. And this is a hillside that you pass every single day. But as you go by this one, you notice something out of the corner of your eye. Your brain works on it as you continue to drive. You know, I'm sure we've all been there. Then it hits you and you think, did I just see a body? But then you laugh it off and literally question your own mental state. Then you remember something you recently heard. That in the 1970s, especially in Los Angeles, where you currently are, your city has earned the nickname Serial Killer Capital of America, with over 20 serial killers operating within that city all at the same time. So yeah, you know, while you normally wouldn't think of such a thing, a body being on a hillside, you then remember what you heard. And you remember that your city has had to deal with the Manson family murders, the Skid Row stabber, the Toolbox killers, and the Grim Sleeper, just to name a few. So yeah, what you thought you probably saw, it was probably more than possible. Yet another serial killer was active in the area and they had a new M.O., leaving women on the hillsides of Los Angeles for everyone to see. Welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth, and this is the story of the Hillside Stranglers. In 1951, Ken Bianchi was born to a 17-year-old sex worker in Rochester, New York. And when he was just two weeks old, he was given up for adoption. Probably a blessing in disguise, right? In August, he was adopted by the Bianchis, which hence his last name. And he was their only child. Now, his behavior problems began when he was very young. He lied almost constantly. He had moments of anger and rage and was known to have incredibly violent tantrums. When he was still young, still in elementary school, he fell off of a jungle gym and ended up landing on his face. And his parents, becoming so concerned about his behavior, especially up until this point, they decided to enroll him in a private Catholic school and then took him to see a psychiatrist. At 10 years old, he was diagnosed with passive-aggressive personality disorder. Now, it's unknown what happened to him between 10 and 12, but what is known is that when he was 12, he started to do very disturbing things, such as pulling down young girls' underwear. And then when he was 14, something tragic happened, which didn't help Ken in the least bit. His adoptive father died from a sudden illness. 
Now, with all of the issues that Ken had up to this point in his life, he actually did end up graduating high school in 1970. And not long after he graduated, he married Brenda Beck, who happened to be his high school girlfriend. The problem is, is that Ken couldn't stay faithful. And so after just eight months of being married, they ended up in divorce. Now, throughout his whole life, Ken had a singular goal. He wanted to be a police officer. And one of the things that he liked about being a police officer was all the authority that came along with it. So what he did is he enrolled at a community college and took courses in police science and psychology, but he didn't do very well and ended up dropping out. He did actually try to get at work with the Monroe County Sheriff's Department there in New York, but they didn't hire him. But he did, though, get a job as a private security guard. Now, as a security guard, he found a loophole. He discovered that he could steal from wherever it was that he was guarding. So he did. He would then get fired from this job and start the whole process all over again, working someplace else. In 1976, Ken decided that he didn't want to be in Rochester anymore, and he had a cousin living in Los Angeles, so he decided to move to Los Angeles to go live with his cousin, or meet up with his cousin, Angelo Buono. Now, Angelo, he was quite a bit older than Ken, and what Ken may or may not have known was that Angelo had quite a significant history of sexual violence. When Ken arrived in Los Angeles for the first time in his life, he lived a lifestyle with Angelo like he had never, ever known. Now, in California at the time, drugs and sex, they were the name of the game. And his cousin Angelo, when he met him, had jet black dyed hair. He was wearing gold chains. He had a large ring on his finger. And in addition to this, he had plenty of young women all around him. All of these women, far, far too young for Angelo. All of this was new for Ken. And he really found himself looking up to his cousin Angelo, especially when Angelo taught him how to get women, especially sex workers, for quote-unquote free by flashing a fake badge in their face. He was told, and I am not going to quote this verbatim, but he was told, quote, you can't let a C word get the upper hand, put them in their place. So let's take a minute and talk about this cousin of Ken's, Angelo, because he, well, he's a real piece of work. Angelo was born on October 5th of 1934, also in Rochester, New York. His mom and dad got divorced, and he ended up moving with his mom and his older sister to Glendale, California in 1939, so when he was about five years old. When he was 14, he began to brag to his friends about sodomizing and sexually assaulting girls. His idol was a man by the name of Carol Chessman who was a serial rapist, kidnapper, and robber around the Los Angeles area in the 1940s. He considered Chessman to be his hero, but he kind of offers a tip to Chessman. 
who says he should have killed his victims instead of letting them live. Now, it was obvious that at 14 years old, Angelo had developed a deep, deep hatred for women, so much so that he even called his mother names like whore and the C-word. By the time he was 16, he had dropped out of high school and had been arrested several times for larceny, including stealing a car. And because of this, he was sent to a juvenile detention center at the Paso Robles School for Boys. But he escaped. So let's fast forward to when he was 21. He's 21. He gets a 17-year-old girl from his old high school pregnant. He did marry her, but this only lasted a week. He just decided to up and leave. After his child was born, he refused to pay child support, divorced her officially, and disowned the child. At 22, just a year later, Angelo again becomes a father. It was with his current girlfriend at the time, Mary. Now, the two of them do decide to tie the knot, and she goes on to have more children with Angelo. By the time Angelo is 28, he is the biological father, now, of five boys and one girl, of five of the children with Mary. When he's 30, he is again sent to jail for petty theft. But this is also the time that Mary decides to file for divorce. According to Mary, the entire marriage was full of violence, sexual perversion, and verbal abuse. Angelo refuses to pay child support and forces Mary and his children to rely on welfare to get by. At 31, he's out of jail now, has a new woman in his life, and this is Nanette. She is 25 and a single mother of two. She, too, goes through the same kinds of problems that Mary did with the violence and the perversion, but she's too afraid to leave him, believing that he would kill her if she did. And we'll soon find out that this fear was completely justified. At age 33, Angelo is arrested for Grand Theft Auto yet again, but because he has so many children, the one-year prison sentence that he would have received and should have, is suspended so that he can work to support his family, which, of course, he doesn't. And seriously, did no one bother to check and see if he was really supporting his family or even ask the family themselves about him? This just blows my mind. They just took his word for it? Now, Angelo's current girlfriend, Nanette, she becomes pregnant and she gives birth to a son. When Angelo is 35, Nanette gives birth to yet another son. Now remember, Nanette already had two children when she and Angelo began a relationship. Now one of these children was a daughter. And when Angelo was 37, he began to abuse Nanette's then 14-year-old daughter. And he claimed that it was because she needed, quote, breaking in. Yeah, that churned my stomach too. He is said to have bragged about abusing the girl. Now, after this, Nanette packed up all of the kids and she doesn't just leave. She leaves the entire state. Not even a year later, 
Angelo is in yet another relationship with a woman named Deborah. And yes, he also marries her. Now, for some reason, him and Deborah never lived together, but they also never bothered to get a divorce. So this was kind of an interesting situation. Not long after this, Angelo, who's living by himself well, with a roommate, his roommate walks in and finds Angelo using binoculars to watch school children across the street as he pleasures himself. So in 1975, Angelo, he's now 41. He's moved into his own place by himself. And what he does is he decides to open up an upholstery shop in the back of this house. Now, while it might seem like, hey, he's trying to get on the straight and narrow and, you know, opening up a business and so forth, you'd be so wrong. This place was just a facade. He would often force his son's girlfriends to have sex with him. And he began to get a local reputation. He was often referred to as a quote-unquote stud, and he even referred to himself as the, no offense to Rocky here, the Italian stallion. Young girls, young, impressionable girls were attracted to him, and he even ended up getting one pregnant. She decided to abort the first child and ended up miscarrying the second time she got pregnant, and even though Angelo at this point has all these different girlfriends, she continues to stay with them. Now, early in 1976 is when Ken comes to town to live with or join up with Angelo. Now, we've already talked a little bit of how, how Ken was completely taken in by Angelo's lifestyle and was especially impressed with the amount of women that were always around him. This didn't mean, though, that Ken didn't want to find his own way in life. So Ken did end up finding a job at a land title company, and after he got his first paycheck, got himself an apartment on East Garfield Avenue in Glendale. He still had dreams of being a police officer and again tried to apply and applied with both the Glendale and the Los Angeles Police Departments, but neither of them wanted to hire him. So while Ken is still working at this land title company, he met someone named Kelly. And it wasn't long before Ken and Kelly began to live together. Now, in 1977, Kelly became pregnant and Ken wanted to marry her, but Kelly didn't feel as if they should be together. And so she told him no, but she did continue to live with him. Now, after this, Ken became depressed for lack of a better term, and started to hang out with his cousin Angelo more and more. And these soon became all-night excursions. When he would come home and Kelly would ask him about what he and Angelo were doing all night, Ken would lie to her. Now, little did Kelly know what exactly Ken and his cousin were now up to. Angelo had talked Ken into becoming a pimp with him. Angelo knew it would make them good money and Ken wouldn't have to worry about working. Now, Angelo knew that Ken would be able to talk to women and get them to agree to work for them. And Angelo, he knew, could talk to people he knew to get customers for these new workers. They did end up finding two young girls, two young runaways, Sabra and Becky. They were both under 18 years old. 
and they were very easily able to get them underneath their control. These two girls were forced to be sex workers for the two men. If the girls refused to do work as they were told, they would be severely physically punished. Now, somehow, Becky ended up meeting a lawyer named David, and she ended up telling David about her situation along with Sabra's situation. And David worked to help both of them escape. Now, Becky was able to successfully escape, but Sabra at the time, for unknown reasons, was not able to. Now, when Angelo found out how Becky had managed to escape and got the name of David, he found David and threatened him. Now, David, this attorney, happened to have a client who was very physically intimidating. And what he did was he sent this client to Angelo's place and spoke to him, telling him to back off of David. Now, Angelo, surprisingly, did. Now, Sabra, though, she's still stuck in her situation. But seeing that Becky was able to get away, she came up with something on her own and it worked. And she, too, was able to get out of her situation. So now Angelo and Ken, they're without an income and they desperately want more girls to continue in their pimping business. So what they do is they pretend to be police officers and they go out and they literally just abduct another young woman. She was forced to do the same work as Becky and Sabra did before her. But here's the problem. They needed clients for this new girl of theirs. And so what they did is they decided to pay someone who had worked in the game for some time. And they said that they would pay her for her list of clients. And this list is usually known as a trick list. Now, it was Deborah. She said, yep, I'll provide you with this list as long, you know, for the right amount of money. And when they met up with Deborah, she ended up bringing along a friend, Yolanda. As Deborah is delivering this list, Yolanda is talking to the men and happens to mention that she works a certain area of Sunset Boulevard. Ken and Angelo, later after this whole meeting takes place, find out that the list that Deborah had given to them was fake. When they found out, they headed out to try and find Deborah, completely enraged. But they couldn't find Deborah. But they did remember where Yolanda, her friend, said that she worked. So they headed Yolanda's way. They found her and abducted her. She would be the first victim of the hillside stranglers. Yolanda would be found on a hillside near the Ventura Freeway. A detective from the LAPD, who would later be a part of the Hillside Task Force, Detective Salerno, arrived on the scene. Now, Yolanda's body had been cleaned before being dumped, but the police could still see marks around her neck, her wrists, and her ankles. She had also been sexually assaulted. Now, this was on October 17th of 1977. Due to the fact that Yolanda was a prostitute, the police didn't really put a whole lot of investigation into her death because they figured that she was likely a victim of her pimp. Then there was another death on November 1st. This one was different. The police showed up in a neighborhood in La Crescenta, 
This is just 12 miles north of downtown L.A. What they found when they showed up was the body of a teenage girl who was found naked and face up on a parkway in a middle class residential area. She had been found in front of a house and the homeowner had covered her up so that the kids heading to school that morning wouldn't see her. She had bruising on her neck and ligature marks on her wrists and her ankles. It was obvious that she had been put there on purpose so that she would found, be found quickly. She was only about 90 pounds and looked to be about 16 years old. An autopsy showed that she had likely been killed around midnight, and it was also clear that she too had been sexually assaulted. The police, though, after two days, they didn't know who she was. There had been no missing persons report filed for her. So what Detective Salerno did is he had the newspapers run a story about her along with a sketch, but still no one called to identify her. The detective then took the sketch and went the extra step to go down to Hollywood Boulevard, which was a very well-known spot for not only the homeless, but for sex workers as well. He did start to get the name of Judy Miller, and a man said that he had seen Judy leaving a restaurant nearby at around 9 o'clock the night that she was found. She was later officially identified as 15-year-old Judy Miller, who had dropped out of Hollywood High School and become a runaway as well as a sex worker. She had last been seen talking to a man who was driving a sedan on Sunset Boulevard. It was later learned that the men had told her that they were quote-unquote undercover police officers. They then handcuffed her and took her to Angelo's upholstery shop on Colorado Street in Glendale, where she was assaulted and then murdered. Just a week later, on November 6th of 1977, another woman was found near a country club in Glendale. Detective Salerno from the LAPD then ended up talking with the Glendale Police Department and found out that there were lots of similarities between these victims that had begun being found. Both of them, they'd been strangled, they had been dumped within six miles or so of one another, and after Salerno looked over this scene, he started to think that at least two men were involved. Because where the latest victim was located was over a large guardrail between the road and where the body ended up, and it would have taken two men to lift this particular victim over the rail. Now, unlike Judy, who took quite some time to identify, this victim was quickly identified as Lissa Castine. She was a 21-year-old waitress, and she worked at a restaurant near the corner of Hollywood and Vine. After she had left work, two men followed her home and pulled her over on her own street. They showed her a fake police badge and told her they were detectives. They then told her that she had to come in for questioning and handcuffed her. On November 13th, again, just a week later, a week, two girls, Dolores, also known as Dolly, who was only 12, 
and Sonia, who was 14, got on a public transportation bus to head home. Now, a witness said that they saw the girls get off this bus and go over to a large two-tone sedan to talk to someone on the passenger side of this car. Their bodies actually ended up being discovered by a nine-year-old boy who happened to be looking through a trash heap near Dodger Stadium. He discovered the girls on November 20th. And while the girls had begun to decompose, the police department was able to determine that they had been strangled and assaulted. Now, before this call came in, though, about what this nine-year-old boy had found, the police had received yet another call about some hikers who had found the naked body of another woman, 20-year-old Christina. Christina was an honors student at the College of Design. She had been located on a hillside between Glendale and Eagle Rock. Just like the others, she had ligature marks on her wrists, her ankles, and her neck. And in addition, she had bruising on all over the front of her, and had blood coming from places, let's just say places, that it should not be coming from. Something was a little different with Christina, though, that was not the same on other victims. Now, Christina, they found, had two puncture marks on her arms, but no other areas of her body indicated at all that she was a drug user. It was later found that she had been injected with Windex. Just three days later, the decomposed body of Evelyn, 28, was found in some bushes near an off-ramp of the Golden State Freeway. She was so badly decomposed that it wasn't, they weren't able to tell if she had been assaulted or tortured, but it was very apparent that she had been strangled. So all of these women are showing up and the police then decide, I don't know what took them so long, but then decided to create a task force, uh, which consisted of 30 officers from the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department and the Glendale Police Department. The press, of course, they had gotten a hold of all of this information and, and given these killers or the killer the name of the hillside strangler. And the reason why it's just singular is because at this point, they believed that it was only one person doing all the killings. You know, even though Detective Salerno thought, hey, this one victim would have required two people to lift her over this guardrail, the press still considered it. And as far as everyone knew, it was one person doing all of these things. Now, in mid-December, Police were again called to a hillside on Alvarado Street, where the body of Kimberly Martin was found. Kimberly was 17 and a call girl who had been working for a quote-unquote modeling agency. And ironically, she chose to work for the agency because she didn't want to be on the streets with all of these women being found strangled on the hillsides. So how was Kimberly found by the men? Well, they went to a public payphone and called the agency and just asked for a girl. 
When the police then investigated the place where she was sent to, it was a vacant place. It had been broken into. Nothing more, at least in the area of leads leading to who could be doing this, was found. And things got really quiet for a few months. And this was until mid-February of 1978, when a woman was found in the trunk of her own car, and the car had been pushed off of a cliff on Angeles Crest. Now, the car was found when a helicopter pilot happened to spot it and police responded. The woman was 20-year-old Cindy, and she was found nude in her trunk. She had been a student and a part-time waitress. Like the others, she had ligature marks and had been tortured and sexually assaulted. The police checked with everyone who knew Cindy, trying to find out if anyone was with her at the time she went missing, you know, what happened. And ironically, Cindy actually lived across the street from a previous victim, Christina, but the two women didn't actually know each other. And according to the book Two of a Kind, The Hillside Stranglers, Cindy had actually gone to Angelo's upholstery business and brought her car in to discuss what could be done with the interior of her vehicle. And then evidently Ken showed up. And according to the book, Ken and Angelo had a private discussion and decided to make her, Cindy, the next victim. So let's kind of go back a little bit. Remember Kelly, Ken's girlfriend who had gotten pregnant and then refused to marry him? Well, she had given birth to a son, and shortly after his birth, she decided that she'd had enough of both Ken and Los Angeles and decided to move back to live with her parents in Bellingham, Washington. After Kelly had left, Ken begged Kelly to take him back, saying he wanted to be with her, he wanted to raise their son. Kelly finally gave in, and Ken ended up moving to Washington that same year, just handful of months after her, their son was born. Now, keep in mind, Kelly had no clue as to what Ken had been up to with his cousin Angelo all these nights he would be away from home. And of course, Ken probably thought that this was his ticket out of L.A. And he had to be very aware that the police were looking for the hillside strangler. And so this was the perfect opportunity to just up and get out of town. So once he was in Washington... He did get a small place for his family, and he got a job with a security agency as a security guard. Now, not long after, he then ended up working as security for a grocery store. And there, he met his co-worker, Karen. Now, after a few months of working at this grocery store, he goes back to work for the original security agency that he had started with and happened to be rehired as a patrol captain. He still wanted to continue his dream of being a police officer, so he applied to work as a reserve deputy for the Whatcom County Sheriff's Department and again started to take classes for this job. So months go by, Ken has moved to Washington, and now it's early in 1979, and the Bellingham, Washington Police Department gets a phone call from the office at Western Washington University, also known as WWU. The reason for their call was that two of their students were missing. They were Diane, age 27, 
and Karen, age 22. The women rented a home together. And if you're wondering, yes, Karen was the same Karen who had worked with Ken at the grocery store. Karen had told people, though she was told not to, she went ahead and did anyway, and, you know, thank goodness for that. She had told people that Ken had offered both her and her roommate $100 each to guard a house, or in other words, to house sit in a certain well-to-do neighborhood for two hours because this house's alarm system needed to be fixed. Now, Ken, remember, he's working for a security firm. And so Karen and her friend likely thought, well, hey, this is all on the up and up, right? Just needs help. He's going to pay us for it. On January 11th of 1979, Karen left the grocery store where she worked part time and told them that she was going to be taking an extra long dinner break. She left around seven o'clock and told the store manager that she'd be back around nine o'clock. Karen was known to be very reliable, and when she didn't come back to work, the manager became alarmed and ended up calling a friend of Karen's. So who he called was a friend named Steve, who just happened to work at the WWU, the Western Washington University Security Office, to see if maybe he would know where she is. Karen, you remember, she's out there telling people what this job is that her and her roommate are going to be doing. Well, one of these people that she had told was another friend, Bill, who also worked at this WWU security office. And Bill had actually said to Karen that, hey, he'd be happy to go with them, you know, if they needed him to. But Karen didn't think that it was necessary. Both of these men from this WWU security office, went by Karen's house and even drove by the address that they were supposed to be house-sitting at to find Karen's car. But it was nowhere to be found. Immediately, they called the Bellingham Police Department. Now, the Bellingham Police Department then called the security firm where Ken worked to find out what they knew about this setup and Karen and her roommate helping to guard this house. So when the owner of this security firm then called Ken, Ken denied even knowing Karen and said that he'd been at the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office Reserve Unit meeting. What better alibi, right? A sheriff's office. So the police then followed up with the sheriff's office and they said that, yes, he'd been there. So far, so good, right? But then they continued and said that he asked to be excused early, saying that he had something to do for the security company. So, of course, at this time, the police are out there looking for Ken, and they finally catch up with him at 2.30 in the morning. As daylight approaches, the two women are still missing. Police talk with their neighbors and their friends, trying to find out more, but nothing came of it. The police chief then decided to launch a full-on scale investigation. The information about the women missing hit the news and they asked the public for any information. In the meantime, the detectives were able to get permission to search the house that the women were supposed to be house-sitting. And when they got there, they found footprints on the kitchen floor. 
the security office at the Western Washington University also called the police department and told them that, hey, neither of the women had shown up for class that morning. So later that day, just before five o'clock, a woman called the police about a strange vehicle on her street. It seemed off to her because the vehicle was parked near an area that had not yet been developed. It was in this cul-de-sac. And when she described the vehicle, it was a near exact match to Karen's green car. So police then raced to the scene and they found two bodies in the back seat of this car. The victims were transported to the hospital and the vehicle was taken into evidence. After an autopsy, it was determined that both of the women had died as a result of strangulation. Now, Ken's security company then called Ken and said, hey, we need you to report to the security guard shack. So when Ken showed up, he was taken into custody. In this same shack, police found Karen's roommate's, Diane's, coat hidden around some pipes about 20 feet from where Ken normally parked his company truck. As the police questioned Ken, his alibis changed constantly, which of course is giving the police red flags. And they determined that, hey, this is our guy. But the problem is no one saw him. And of course he didn't confess. So there wasn't a lot they could go on or even arrest him for. One super sharp, super sharp detective, Detective Nolte, had noticed that when they had brought Ken in, Ken had a California driver's license. And so what he did is he contacted the LAPD. Now, Detective Nolte, he was wondering if they had any information on this guy. So either by pure luck or just something working in his favor, the detective ended up getting transferred to Detective Salerno, who is now a member of the Hillside Strangler Task Force. Detective Nolte then gave him the address on Ken's license, and Detective Salerno immediately knew that Nolte's case and his case in the Hillside Stranglers were connected. Detective Salerno then flies to Bellingham, Washington. In the meantime, Bellingham detectives went to the women's home, the Karen and Diane's house, and they found a message that Diane had written to Karen that said Ken had called. And additionally, remember, Karen didn't keep the information about this house sitting a secret whatsoever and told many people about it, including adding Ken's name when she talked about it. So the L.A. detectives, they arrive and they wanted to see if there were any similarities between the murders in L.A. and those in Washington. So Bellingham police went to Ken's house and grabbed his clothes, as well as various pieces of stolen items from the places that he'd been assigned to guard. Now, in addition to this, they also found jewelry, two pieces matched actually the descriptions of jewelry that had been worn by Hillside Strangler victims. On January 15th, Ken made his court appearance and he was charged with possession of stolen property. That's it. 
Now, because he was just charged for this possession of stolen items, the prosecutor spoke up and made it a point to tell the judge that, hey, this guy, Ken, he is also the main suspect in the double homicide that had just happened in Bellingham. So because of this, the judge set Ken's bail at an incredibly high amount, and he was then given a public defender. Now, the evidence that had been collected from Karen's car, the bodies, and even the car itself, all of this was sent off to the FBI, where they found plenty of physical evidence. And this included carpet fibers on the clothes of the two women that matched the house that they were house-sitting. These same fibers were also found on clothes that Ken was wearing that night. Hairs from various parts of the body were found on the stairs leading to the basement of this home they were house-sitting. And other hairs were found on Diane's body that matched Ken's. So Ken Bianchi was officially arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder of Karen and Diane at the end of January of 1979. Three days later, he was arraigned in court and pleaded not guilty. About two months later, on March 30th, Ken decided to change his plea from not guilty to not guilty by reason of insanity because he now claims that he had amnesia about the murders of Karen and Diane. His attorney said that three psychiatrists had examined Ken and said he suffered from severe multiple personality disorder. The judge then says, okay, well, we're going to need more psychiatrists to examine him. So, and he needs to get a brain scan. So what he did is the defense would pick two psychiatrists the prosecution would pick two psychiatrists and the judge would pick two psychiatrists, all to evaluate Ken. So while Ken is in the process of being examined by all of these doctors, the LAPD is doing their work in Los Angeles trying to tie him to the Hillside Strangler cases. And it was found that they had enough evidence to charge him with all 10 killings. So once these psychiatrists had their conclusions as to Ken and whether or not he was competent to stand trial, you'd think that you'd have a really great answer. And it was so far from that. Two doctors thought that he was not competent. Two thought that he was. And two didn't know either way. So I guess they should have had an odd number of doctors, huh? Anyway, keep in mind, at this point, the police are strictly going after Ken, not only for the murders in Washington, but also all of the L.A. Strangler cases. Now, Ken, I'm sure, didn't want to go down alone. Ken, for some reason, uh, was placed under hypnosis. And during, while being under this hypnosis, he created an alter ego named Steve Walker. And this Steve Walker was the one who confessed to killing Kathy and Diane. And Steve gave explicit details about these killings that only the suspect would know. Steve then also talked about all of the murders in Los Angeles and even dropped his cousin's name, saying that, hey, he helped in all of it. 
Now, when Ken was offered a deal to plead guilty to not only the two murders in Washington, but to only five of the 10 murders in Los Angeles, and as long as he would testify truthfully and completely against his cousin Angelo, he would avoid the death penalty and he would be able to serve life sentences and be able to do this back in California. So as soon as he learned about this, Steve was nowhere, nowhere to be found and Ken was back. As soon as Ken pleaded guilty, literally within 30 minutes after him doing this, the task force in Los Angeles arrested Angelo at his home slash business in Glendale. Now, Angelo, he didn't fight the arrest. And when he got to court, he was charged with 24 felonies. These felonies included 10 murders, extortion, conspiracy, sodomy, and pimping and pandering. The Los Angeles District Attorney's Office didn't have any evidence directly linking Angelo to these crimes. They were literally hanging their bets on the testimony of Ken in court. So on October 22nd, Ken is brought down from Washington to Los Angeles and he goes before a judge and pleaded guilty to five of the 10 Hillside Strangler killings. He was then sentenced to his life sentences that day. It didn't take long for Ken to start causing some pretty major issues. He started to make inconsistent statements, which essentially just made him seem very untrustworthy. And Ken did whatever he could to have the case against his cousin, Angelo, dismissed. But, you know, honestly, what did they really expect from a criminal, right? Whatever Ken thought would happen with him during all of this and acting out and just trying to confuse everybody didn't work. A judge later reviewed the evidence they had against Angelo and decided, hey, it's enough for a probable cause, and then ordered Angelo to stand trial. Now, Angelo's trial started on November 16th, and this trial was incredibly long. It, it lasted over two years. Just to put it in some kind of perspective, Ken, remember, he said that he would testify against Angelo and he did get on the stand, he was the 200th witness to testify. And he spent 80 days on the stand. 80. Now, a lot of this time was because Ken would make a statement and then he would turn around and make a completely different statement about the same thing. At one point, he even claimed that he had completely lost his memory. Now, the case finally went to jury on November 18th of 1983. And after the jury deliberated for 28 days, Angelo was found guilty of nine of the 10 murders. And the jury decided to give him life sentences rather than the death penalty. When the formal sentencing came about, the judge stated, and I quote, in view of the jury's mercy, I am, of course, without authority to impose greater punishment. I would not have the slightest reluctance to impose the death penalty. If ever there was a case where the death penalty was appropriate, it is this case. 
Angelo was sent to Folsom Prison. And in 2002, he died of a heart attack in his cell at age 67. Now, Angelo was in a cell by himself due to the nature of his crime, which likely meant that he was isolated because he was in danger from the rest of the inmate population because they would have very likely attacked him for harming women and girls. You know, even those incarcerated have standards. A retired detective, after Angelo passed away, said after learning of his death, quote, As far as he's concerned, I don't really have any feeling for him. The world's probably a better place without him. And as far as Ken goes, Ken was sent to the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington, where he is still incarcerated today. And he, as of the date of this recording, is 72 years old. You know, I've often talked about how the 1970s were really a crazy time for plenty of serial killers and murderers and just all kinds of really intense, terrible things happening as far as crimes go. Not quite sure what it was about the 1970s, but nonetheless, this likely will not be the last episode I will ever do that includes something that happened in the 1970s. But what I find so terrible is that quite often these deal with women who are just quite frankly just taken advantage of or lied to and abducted as if they were nothing. With that being said, I want to give away a couple of phone numbers here. There is the organization for the National Runaway Safe Line. And this phone number is 1-800-RUNAWAY. You can also visit their website at the same exact number, 1-800-RUNAWAY, R-U-N-A-W-A-Y dot org. The second phone number that I would love to pass along is that of the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Their phone number is 888-373-7888. You can also send a text of the word INFO to 233-733. Again, you can text them, text the word INFO to 233-733. And their website is humantraffickinghotline.org. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. If you like this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe or give it a like or even a comment. I would be so grateful. Thank you so much. We will talk again soon.